Good morning. I hope you're doing well this morning because I'm excited because I get to teach the Word of God this morning. And uh, I always, that was when I was pastoring, that was one of the things I always, as I came through the parking lot this morning, God would remind me, you get to teach the Word of the living God. And I pray uh, that it would come through this morning. So let's begin with just a quick prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, at the risk of stating the obvious, we live in an age of uncertainty, don't we? We live in an age of uncertainty. Now, mind you, uncertainty has always been a part of the human condition on this planet since man left the garden. But we have the technology today that we can daily be jolted by news of another mass shooting. By the way, there were two in the news feed this morning. The threat of climate change. Wasn't all that long ago we were worried about government shutdowns. And if you're getting a social security check, you were probably wondering. We live in an age of uncertainty. And not only that, but it's being encouraged. Political pundits are perpetually speculating about what might be coming just around the corner if the other side wins the next election. Now pick your party and your favorite cable news outlet. They're both doing the same thing. They're trying to create anxiety. They're trying to create angst. We thought things were going to get back to normal after the C word. COVID. Whoa, sorry about that. COVID. (laughs) You know, COVID messed me up. I, you know, it probably affected you, affected everybody. But I was watching the fireworks last night over Watson Lake. And some of you probably were watching those too. And and I saw these beautiful, uh, you know, starbursts. And then there was, a, you know, the ones that kind of look like Saturn when they explode and there's a ring around it. And then one popped up and the only thing that came to my mind was coronavirus. <laughs> See, what the pandemic really did, though, people, is it stripped us of our illusion of personal control of our world. It, was, it primed us for conspiracy theories that are breeding. Social distrust is at an all-time high. We don't trust each other anymore in this country. Because we need someone to blame or something to explain what we can't figure out. There's, there's doubt. There's uncertainty. We're all kind of walking on edges, even with our fellow believers. Even me talking about this this morning is making some of you nervous. That's okay. They did a survey in 1964 in which one of the questions that the surveys, surveyors asked was... Do you trust the federal government to do the right thing? 
it would be funny if it isn't sad. In 1964, 77% of the population that answered the survey said they trusted the federal government to do the right thing. Of course, then came Vietnam and Watergate. By 1994, that number was 20%. I can't even imagine what it is today. I can't even imagine. Conservative columnist David Brooks wrote an article in recent years in which he said that the, the cancer of distrust in America has served or has spread to every vital organ of our society. He wrote that in October of 2020, right before the election. He goes on and he says, distrustful people try to make themselves invulnerable and armor themselves up in a sour attempt to feel safe. And because of this, they lose faith in experts. They lose faith in the truth, in the flow of information that is the basis, the foundation of our modern society. We don't trust each other anymore. Sharon Hottie Miller, in her book, The Cost of Control, I imagine Scott's probably referenced it. It's a great book. When we wrote this, she says, when we rely on autonomy to feel in control, we end up distrusting everyone but ourselves. And this produces anxiety. Interesting. Uncertainty and doubts are a part of life. I get that. They are. They're, they're a part of life. We, we have doubts about everything from, you know, the government, as I've, we've mentioned, and other people, and, uh, uh, p- different political persuasions. But we often doubt our own faith. I mean, I've found myself asking from time to time, God, are you really in control of this mess down here? What if I'm wrong? What if I'm just a product of uh, of being born in the right place at the right time with benevolent parents and a society that was generally friendly to Christianity? as a worldview, what if I'm wrong? Now, let me state for the record, I am absolutely secure in my relationship with Christ. John 10, 28, 27 and 28 tell me that no one can snatch me from Christ's hands, and I hope that's your place, but, as well, but the reality is at times, intellectual understanding of that truth meets the stress and the fatigue and the trauma that we're dealing with in our society. And doubt is never very far from the trail that we're walking. So if you've ever felt that tension, if you've ever struggled with kind of the condition we're, we're living in today, how do I make sense of it all? I have an encouraging word for you. In fact, it's not me, it's John. The apostle has an encouraging word for us this morning because I want to extend to you this morning an invitation, an invitation to a confident life. 
an invitation to a confident life. And it's found in 1 John chapter 3 this morning. We're going to be looking at that. If you have your Bible, I hope you, you do. Uh, I know a lot of you have electronic Bibles, and that's great too. Uh, it's a little tough to write on your phone, though, and I like to write in my Bible. I know I'm an old guy. But he's got a word for us. And I want to extend that to you this morning. And here's my big idea today. If you don't get anything else, you got it written in your notes. A confident life grows from experiencing the assurance of our salvation. A confident life grows from experiencing the assurance of our salvation. Now, he does this in three very practical ways. So, uh, hopefully these will be memorable to you, that we experience assurance of salvation so that we can live confidently. In other words, it produces that. It, it develops that in us. And so if you're struggling with a little confidence this morning, let's jump in. Chapter 3, verse 11. John begins this section, and he says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Now, I'm going to skip over verses 12 and 13 for just a minute. I'm going to come back to them. He says in verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The first way that we experience the assurance of our salvation is this, as we love others sacrificially, as we practice loving other people sacrificially. John reminds his readers, his audience, us, that at the core of our faith is a God who is love, and that we, because we have been loved by him, are to love other people. Agape love, the type of love he's talking about here, is the, one of the de-defining de qualities of who God is. It is unilateral, unconditional, and non-transactional. What do I mean by that? It's a one-direction love that says, I will love you no matter what. There's no quid pro quo that if you love me a little bit, I'll love you back. No, it's just, I will love you. I will love you. And this is not a human characteristic. It's not. The closest thing we have to this kind of love, really on this, in, in the natural world, is the love of a mother for her child. Now, this picture, you can see they got my best side. This is my mom. It was the last time I hugged her. It was the last time I was with her on this planet. She died about a week after this picture was taken in January of this year, two months shy of her 102nd birthday. This woman showed me what unconditional love was. And there's probably no other human more responsible for helping me to believe that there was a God that loved me unconditionally than Jean Benedum. And I miss her already. <laughs> but I'm grateful for the time we had. You see, our natural bent is to be selfish, isn't it? 
I didn't hear too many amens. Uh, Our natural bent is to be self-centered, not other-centered. In the words of of that famous country western philosopher, Toby Keith, I want to talk about me, I want to talk about I, I want to talk about number one. Oh my, me, my, what I think, what I like, what I want, what I don't know, what I see. I like talking about you, 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 you usually. But occasionally, I want to talk about me. And the reality is, it's not occasionally I want to talk about me. It's usually I want to talk about me. We are, are, are self-centered coming out of the womb. It's me first, self-preservation. And if you don't believe me, you haven't been around a two-year-old lately. <laughs> now, we can be trained out of the worst parts of our selfish narcissism. It's called growing up. It's called becoming an adult. It's being able to take on responsibility. That's some of the worst elements of it, but it never completely disappears. And so what what John does is he uses a graphic example in verses 12 and 13 of Cain from Genesis chapter 4. Cain kills his brother Abel because his sacrifice is not accepted. And what he's doing is he's showing us what unrestrained self eventually leads me to. Don't kid yourself what what you are capable of and I am capable of. Unrestrained unrestrained selfishness ends in bitterness, anger, jealousy, hatred, and sometimes even death. It takes us down a path that leads us that direction problem. Our society's problem is not a lack of knowledge. Our deepest problem is a selfish rebellion that exists in every human heart, mine included, yours included. This narcissism grows from insecurity because down deep we know we're not the center of the universe. I mean, I don't think there's 200 centers of the universe in this hall right now. But if I focus on me, that's where it leads me. And so the command that he gives us, as he mentions, is to love sacrificially. As Christ loved us, so we we are to love other people. It sets us free from the obsession of self. What it does when we love other people sacrificially, when we say, you know what, I'm going to choose to love, be other-centered and love you, Regardless of how you respond to me or what you think of me, when I do that, I'm actually functioning in the way God created us to be. Ephesians chapter 2, you know what it says? You were created in Christ for what? Good works. You were created for good works. You were created to do this. You were created to love people. And when you do that, and when we begin to love, it's, it's, it, it's, we begin to function the way we actually are supposed to live. Think of your human body. You don't have to think about it too long. But think of your human body. If you're, when, when you are free of injury, you are free of disease, you are fed, you've, got, you've had good sleep, you uh, feel good. You know, life, you know, it's like when you were, you know, 25 years old or whatever. You feel good and, you, you know, the aches and pains aren't there. What do you want to do? You want to play pickleball. 
It's what, it, it is this idea that, that, that when we sacrificially love other people, it's the way the architect designed us. It's the way we're supposed to live. It's true for our whole being. Jesus said that a new command he gave to us that we love one another. John chapter 13. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. Not by your political affiliation. But that you have love. And the world sees that love. That when we get bumped, we're like a, a glass of water. John, or uh, early, Jesus had said that, uh, you can go ahead and put that up. That when we come to him, we will be like uh, a fountain where living water will flow up out of us. And that's, and, and so this, this, when we get bumped in life, what spills out is what's on the inside. And if what spills, when we get bumped in our life, Yesterday, I realized I, I had a, a, a nail in my tire. And I took it to the guy, the, the short store down there, and, and they said, well, we can't just replace the one tire. It's an all-wheel drive. We've got to get two tires. You know, $600 later, I'm going, oh, what's going to bump out of me? See, if, if, if the love of God is, is within us, what bumps out of us when life doesn't go our way is compassion. It's mercy, it's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's gentleness, it's self-control. If self is what is filling us, what bumps out of us? Hatred, anger, jealousy, all those good things. Not. So the first way we experience it, see what happens when we do that, then we, we, we have this surge of supernatural joy inside of us and assurance. That's number one. We'll experience assurance of our salvation as we give of ourselves sacrificially. Well, what is, what's the second one? Number two, we will experience this as we give of ourselves generously. Look at verse 16. Again, he says, by this we know, uh, love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay our, down our life for our brothers. Now I'm going to stop there for a second. We have a model. Sacrificial love is how we know we have life. This that flows out of us. And sacrificial love is giving. For God so loved the world he gave. It is it is inherent in loving. It is loving agape loving is giving. It is not feeling it is more volitional than emotional. It is the act of, of acting in the best interest of the other person. Regardless of what it costs you. It costs Christ his life. Now, if that's, the, if that's the only application, I can only do that one time on this earth. So there has to be a broader application of laying down our life for our brothers, isn't it? Our sisters. And that's what he, he says in verse 17. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and, uh, and sees his brother in need, yet does, closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And the, and the answer is obviously it doesn't. It's a rhetorical question. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. As the old adage goes, talk is cheap. Love is cheap 
is costly. Now, I can't tell you what that looks like for you in every situation. What does it mean to lay down your life for others in your life, to, to express that love in that way? So I'll just I'll, I'll offer some questions, and you do with them what you want. Do I need to have the last word in every discussion? Do I have to win the argument every time? Am I willing to be a servant, especially to those who may not be as appreciative as you think they ought to be? Because you know you're a servant when you don't mind being treated like one. How about, how often do I give my time and my energy to the things that I profess I believe in? Am I willing to share my financial resources? You see, the only way that we give of ourselves, of our resources in every way, generously, is that it flows from a grateful heart. I think one of the biggest problems we're struggling with in this time of uncertainty is we have lost our sense of gratitude as a people. America, I think today, is one of the most, feels like one of the most entitled places on earth. We feel entitled to things. And when we feel entitled, it's hard to be grateful. It's hard to be grateful. But giving generously of ourselves has a profound effect of protecting my heart from idolatry. My idolatry to money, my idolatry to my time, my idolatry to myself. I came across a bumper sticker the other day. This is one I can get behind. Make America grateful again. I hope whatever your persuasion is, that you would embrace that as a believer. How can I make, help make people more grateful? How can I live my life more gratefully? Because that's where, I'm, that's where this generosity is going to flow out of. And you know what happens when you give that way? You feel assurance. You begin to sense a, a sense of confidence that there's somebody. You see, I can't give if I don't believe my needs are going to be taken care of. I have to believe that God is going to meet my needs and therefore I can give. And I don't have to be number one. I don't have to be first. I can be second, third, whatever. But out of that comes the gift of assurance and the ability to live confidently even though the world around me might be just going crazy. Number three. Here's our third one. As we align our heart with God's daily as we align our heart with God's daily. What do I mean by that? I mean that our conscience can be manipulated. People feel guilty about different things. But as we align our heart with God's, it begins to change us. A, a mom was having a vocabulary lesson with her little son, Jimmy. And she came to two words and she said, Jimmy, what's the difference between conscious and conscience? Conscious and conscience. 
And Jimmy thought for a minute and he said, well, conscious means I'm aware of something. Conscience means I wish I weren't. (laughs) I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine who was actually on one of my staffs years ago. And he was, he was struggling. He was having a hard time. And he, he um, we sat down and we were having coffee across the table in my office. We were talking. And I said, I want you to do something for me. He was, he was just down. And I said, I want you to imagine that you're sitting at this table with Jesus having a cup of coffee. Doesn't that sound like it'd be a cool thing to do? Be able to sit down and have coffee with Jesus. You know there's going to be a lot of time. We're going to have a chance. But anyway, I said to him, look into Jesus' eyes. What do you see? Look at his demeanor. Look at his body language. What is that telling you? And what he said just stunned me. He said, well, he's frowning. He's disappointed in me. Mind you, this was one of the best Bible teachers I had ever known. His love for the lost, his desire to live a godly life were, you know, they put me to shame many times. But he suffered from an overactive conscience. He was, he He wasn't looking how far he had come in his Christian life. He was looking at what he hadn't done yet and what he hadn't gotten to. Look at verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. And here's that word, and reassure our hearts. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything, beloved. He knows every stinking thing about you and me. And he still loves us. If our heart does not condemn us, We have, there's the word, confidence before God. We have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And just cut it there for just a second. My friend was suffering from an overactive conscience. He was feeling guilty about things that God wasn't asking him to feel guilty about. Or they were things that he had already confessed and been dealt with and been forgiven. And when we live with guilt feelings, when we've already been forgiven, that is not guilt anymore, that's shame. And the difference between guilt and shame is that guilt says, I did something wrong. Shame says, there's something wrong with me. This is from God. When we violate his character, we violate who he is. This is from the pit. 
Because that's not who you are in Christ. That's not who God says you are. It's an imperfect journey. I get it. And we're not there. And we still do sin. You see, our, our conscience can be manipulated. You know, the world tells us, throw away guilt. Just throw it away. And no, we, we need to keep guilt. But here's the thing. We need to feel guilty about the things that align with God's word. Where is it written? Ask yourself constantly if you're, if you're having those feelings. Where is it written? Guilt is a good thing, but it, it can be manipulated. You can, you can feel bad about things you shouldn't feel bad about, and you cannot feel bad about things you should. It's like the guy who, who wrote a letter to the, the IRS, and he said, dear sir, to whom it may concern, I can't sleep. My conscience is bothering me. Enclosed, you'll find a check for $500. And he signed his name and his, serial, his uh, social security number. And then at the bottom he wrote, P.S. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. <laughs> we try to manipulate these things rather than aligning ourselves with, with what God says and who we are. Where is it written? And I know we're not there yet. I don't think anybody, well, I know. (laughs) I don't even know you, but I know that we're not there yet. We've got a long way to go. One of my spiritual heroes was this guy. He's Brennan Manning. Yeah, there he is. Brennan Manning. Maybe some of you know of him. Um, He was a, a Catholic priest who became an alcoholic, most likely from communion wine. (laughs) He left the priesthood, got married, then got divorced. And all the while, he continued to write about the grace of God in prolific ways. His seminal work is a little book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. Maybe you've heard of it. I highly recommend it. And you say, how can this guy be your hero? And it's not because of his failures. It's because he understood the truth that he wrote here. He said, Jesus comes not for the super spiritual, but the wobbly and the weak need who know they don't have it all together and who are not too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. Men and women, that's who we are. We are the spiritual order of the wobbly and the weak need. I've not seen any churches name themselves after that. But that's who we are. Because it's only then that we understand that we are not there yet. And grace is not excusing my way of life in such a way that I can do whatever I want to do because that's just self again. But it's saying in the meantime, his grace is sufficient. His grace covers the things as we walk in this unfinished journey that we're on until we finally get there. We are the spiritual order of the wobbly and the weak need, existing as a fellowship 
of believers, saved by grace with hearts aligned with the word of God, whose desire is to please the Father through faithful obedience. And here's the deal. How do we please God? See, the fact that you want to please God is evidence that he's already in you doing work. The Spirit is, is working on your heart. How do we please God? Well, Hebrews eleven six 6 makes it pretty clear. Apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. So if you're trying to please God and you're not trusting God, oh, you've got a sad existence. It's going to be a frustrating existence. See, the, victori- this, the truth is the so-called victorious Christian walk is more of a limp. It's, we experience the confidence in life when we realize that our assurance rests in his grace as we seek to align our heart with God's daily. And when we align our hearts with God's daily, then what we begin to pray aligns with God's heart, which is why he says when we pray, we, get, we can receive answers because our heart is aligned. This is not a you-can-have-whatever-you-want kind of thing. We experience reassurance, assurance of our faith that grows into confidence in three ways. When we love other people sacrificially, when we give of ourselves generously, and when we align our hearts with God's heart daily, something begins to change inside of us. And His grace is at work in our hearts to give us confidence. You see, many of us, this is the way we look at the Christian life. I'm going to throw that up there. We look at the Christian life this way, as if we're standing at a front of a pile of junk. And that junk is the sin in my life that I haven't completely conquered yet. And we think that Jesus is on the other side of that pile. And he's saying, come on, Mark, get it together. Let's go. But what this tells me is that's not the case at all. That's not the case at all. In fact, because in verses 23, we are told that the spirit abides in us by the spirit who's been given to us. Here's the real picture. We're standing, that junk is still there and it's still real. Ask my wife. But I'm not alone. Because Jesus is standing right next to me. And he's got his arm around me. And the spirit of God is dwelling inside of me. And he's saying to me, hey Mark, let's go after that bathtub. Together. You and me. And we walk through. In other words, the Christian life is not trying to get ourselves together so that we can get to Jesus, but we're with Jesus so we can deal with the issues in our life. And what that does is that gives me assurance. That gives me confidence that no matter what I'm facing, I'm not facing it alone, people. I'm not alone. Change is possible because the Spirit is inside of me and Jesus is walking with me. And so, One day, I'm looking forward to this day. One day, I am going to be completely free of sin, and so are you. 
I'm longing for that day. Jesus, make it today, please. I'm longing for that day. But until that day comes, I'm not alone. And when I'm, until I'm completely free of sin, in the meantime, there is hope for the hurting. There is help for the struggling. There is rest for the weary and comfort for the discouraged. Because the spirit of the living God is not done with me or you. He's not done yet. And therefore, we can have confidence and assurance. There was another John who came centuries later. He was a rough guy. A sea captain. Involved in the slave trade. The most hideous form of sin man has created. is the enslavement of other people. And he trafficked in it. And yet he would become one of the most beloved and revered pastors in church history. And it was... And the assurance that came to him is the assurance that comes to all of us. For from his pen, these words came. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. As it was for John Newton... So it is for each of us, men and women. This amazing grace is still our greatest source of assurance and confidence in life. Trust him and you will please him. I am confident of that. So here's a couple next steps. Here's a couple next steps. Set aside some time. It's on your sheet. Set aside some time to evaluate where you really experience your security. What percent is your finances, your health, your approval above others, your career, your, secure, your, your family, your job? Number two, determine to put your energy where your faith is. Find a place and an opportunity of ministry to give yourself away. You will be the beneficiary. You will be the beneficiary. And number three, ask yourself... Where do I need to align my heart with God's more fully today? Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Forgive us today of focusing too much on ourselves. Help us to to tap into your spirit. And lean into you and give ourselves to others. To love them sacrificially and to give generously and to to pursue you and align our hearts with you each day. Father, whatever the world throws at us, it's not a surprise to you. We know that. And so we trust you. We trust you today. Help me to trust you tomorrow when everything comes flying back at me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.